Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude, second, last, second to last book in the Bible, and we'll be looking at the last two verses of Jude's letter today, this evening, verses 24 and 25. Uh, before we read them, let's ask the Lord for His helping Spirit to guide us this evening. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to worship you now as we sit attentively under the preaching of your word. Would you speak into our hearts, Lord, for your servants are listening. Open our eyes, we pray, that we might behold wonderful things concerning your majesty in the word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Well, if you've been with us for a while, or perhaps if you grew up in a Reformed church, you'll be familiar with the last element of our corporate worship service. In fact, you'll see it printed here at the very bottom of your order of evening worship. It's called the benediction. Now, strictly speaking, a benediction is a word of blessing from God to us. It's a word of blessing from God to us. It's a pronouncement that comes from the Lord, is based on Scripture, and is spoken over God's people as a blessing to you. Think of Numbers 6, a very common benediction, the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, and so on and so forth. Now, Jude 24 and 25 is sometimes used as a benediction, isn't it? I'm sure you've heard it used that way before. And the language seems to suggest that it could be. It tells us that he's able to keep you, he's able to present you, he's able to give you great joy, and those sound like words of God's blessing to us. It seems to be the language of benediction, but to be a bit more precise, Jude 24 and 25 is really a doxology. A doxology is a word of praise from us up to God. It's spoken up rather than being spoken down. Blessing comes down to us in a benediction. Doxology goes up to God in words of praise. Now, that's all very technical, and you might be wondering why I'm explaining the difference. Does it have any real significance? I actually think the difference is quite significant, and I also think the fact that Jude ends with a doxology is both interesting and significant for us to consider. Most of the New Testament letters end with benedictions, don't they? We could just look back on the page before this. You'll see 3 John verse 15, peace be to you. That's a benediction. That's a a word of promise of God's peace, and and it's pronounced over the people there. You could turn back uh, just a couple of books to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We go back to Hebrews chapter 13. There's a whole benediction listed here. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and so on and so forth. Most of the New Testament letters end with a benediction, and this one ends with a doxology. And it should be kind of striking if you're paying attention in your New Testament reading, why does Jude end with a doxology? The question is even more pronounced when we consider the weightiness of Jude's letter. Think with me for a minute about what Jude is writing about. He's writing to Christians and telling them to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith that they've been given to contend against false teachers who would seek to come in and usurp the authority in the church and change the teaching that they had been given. He talks about rebellious angels and rebellious people who are bound in chains until the final judgment. This is heavy stuff. Jude's not a light book with a bunch of uh, necessarily encouraging comments about the Christian life. Rather, it paints a a realistic and, frankly, grim picture of what life in this world is like. One can imagine that the recipients of Jude's letter were kind of worn out by the time they got to verse 23, thinking about all the things that they have to contend with and all the threats that abound around them. And you would expect that they wanted a benediction at the end, couldn't you? It'd be nice to get a benediction at the end of such a heavy uh, heavy letter, Perhaps they were worn out, and perhaps some of you are worn out. Could you use a benediction right now? I know I could. It's easy at the end of a difficult day, a heavy day, or even just a heavy season in life to wish that we had more reminders of God's promises to us. So I ask you, are you up to your eyeballs in trial and difficulty? In sin and struggle, sadness, have you cried out with the psalmist, darkness has become my only companion? Perhaps you come to worship hoping for a benediction. You desire to hear a promise from God, to be reminded of His blessing towards you, to be reminded of the grace that's yours in Christ Jesus. If I'm ever going to contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints, I need more benediction. We could imagine Jude giving us one of the great benedictions of the New Testament. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That would have been a good way to end Jude, wouldn't it? It'd be a good way to end today, wouldn't it? Instead, we have a doxology. It's not a word down from God to us. It's a word up from us to God in praise. Why is that? I think there's two reasons Because in the midst of trial and difficult circumstances, threats all around, both from within and from without, in the struggles of life, in difficult seasons, in times of sadness, and in hours of darkness, God still deserves worship. He deserves to be glorified. He deserves our praise even when life is tough. I also think that this is a doxology because Jude intends for us to learn the lesson that doxology always returns to us in benediction, doesn't it? 
When we worship God in praise and adoration, it always returns to us in benediction. Do you remember that old saying? I'll start it and let's see if we can finish it together. I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. God is like that. This morning we learned that God is a Velcro God. And this evening we're learning that He's a rubbery God. That whatever we sing to Him in praise, when we lift up His name and magnify all of His infinite worth and works, it rebounds back to us in blessing. Think with me for a moment again about Numbers chapter 6, that ironic benediction. Most of us are familiar with it. We've heard it so many times that you may know it by heart. But what a lot of people miss is where in Scripture the ironic benediction is offered. What's the rest of Numbers chapter 6 about? It's about the Nazarite vow, isn't it? Numbers chapter 6 is the instructions given by God for an Israelite man who wanted to live a life of dedicated worship. He took a Nazarite vow to commit himself and all of his life, all of his actions, what he ate, who he touched, what he drank, what he was about, all of that was set aside for God in a life of worship. And the response by God to a man who took the Nazarite vow is the pronouncement of benediction. When we worship God, it returns to His people as promise and encouragement. This is amazing that God who alone deserves worship and praise and glory and honor and dominion and wealth and majesty, when we acknowledge those things, it's we who receive something in doing so, isn't it? I think this doxology here in Jude 24 and 25 has five parts that I want to draw our attention to this evening that sounds overwhelming. They are all short Um, points to be made. There's five things that Jude shows us about God, about His blessings, His benefits towards us, His children. In other words, Jude gives us five answers to the question, why worship? Number one, the reason Jude tells us to worship is because God preserves His people, verse 24, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I'm so glad that in God's providence, Neil preached from Psalm 121 this morning, the keep psalm. Six times the word shamar is used in Psalm 121 about God's guardianship and protectorship over His people. And it's the same word that the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses here in Jude 24. He is able to keep you. God guards and keeps His people He preserves us all the way to the end of this life and beyond. And that's one of the first reasons that we're to worship Him, isn't it? Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 tells us that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. This is what Jude is affirming for us here in verse 24. Actually, the idea is all throughout the book of Jude. If you look with me uh, earlier in the letter at chapter 1, we read that we are being kept for Jesus Christ, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In verse 6, we read that there were angels who did not keep their own position of authority. They did not stay, the ESV says, within their own position of authority, but left their dwelling, and now God is keeping them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. And then in verse 21, we're told to keep yourselves in the love of God. It's a theme that runs throughout the book 
because it's so important to the Christian life to be reminded that God is sovereign and in control of the destiny of each one of his people. God is the one who preserves us. He keeps us kept, as we've heard so many times over the years. Imagine what it would be like if we had to keep ourselves for God. Can you imagine what that life must be like? To have to keep yourself in the love of God? How frightening would that be? To wake up every day wondering if I would have the energy, the commitment, the discipline, the wisdom to do what would be necessary to keep me on the right side of God every day. What a burden that life must be like. That's the life of so many religious people though, isn't it? Whether Christian or otherwise, so many world religions are rooted in the idea of doing enough good works to get yourself on the correct side of the scale when you stand before whatever deity you think is in charge of this whole thing. And many people in the Christian church functionally live that way, don't they? Waking up afraid that they won't be able to do enough good to keep themselves kept and going to bed grieved by their failure after failure after failure. As if we had to keep ourselves kept. So many people, as Alan Jackson so eloquently sings, working hard to get to heaven. Maybe people read Jude 21 as evidence that this notion of keeping ourselves rests completely on us. He tells the Christians in in his letter, keep yourselves in the love of God, doesn't he? And if you take that in isolation from everything else that Scripture says, you could mistakenly conclude that it's on you to remain faithful. And frankly, so many close to orthodox beliefs end up there. They teach you that you're brought into fellowship with God by grace, but then you're kept in fellowship with God by keeping the law. And so what you have is a sort of initial justification. God says, okay, now you're in the covenant community. And then because of the work that you do throughout this life, you end up with a final justification where he gives you the real stamp of approval to get into glory with him. That's a dangerous, that's a damnable offense to teach that sort of thing. Because it puts the burden of your salvation really on your shoulders, doesn't it? Well, uh, Jude here in his letter tells us the full picture in in verse 24. He says, God is able to keep you from stumbling. He's the one that keeps you from stumbling. It reminds me of the great quote from St. Augustine where he said, My whole hope is only in thy exceedingly great mercy. Give then what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. Jude can say, keep yourself in the love of God. And then he reminds us that it's God who keeps us for himself. Do you know why it is that God's the one that keeps us and not ourselves? This is pretty basic, but it's worth being reminded. God's the one that keeps us, so he'll receive all the glory in our salvation. Imagine a heaven where everyone who got there got there by their own efforts, having kept themselves, worked hard, obeyed the law, earned their way in. 
If we could do this, if we could keep ourselves, present ourselves, save ourselves, then really, what would we need God for? But He is sovereign from the beginning to the end of our salvation. Be reminded, Christian, that you didn't awaken your dead soul to trust in Him. Rather, He breathed new life into you. Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. We don't keep ourselves in the faith. He's the one that keeps us from stumbling. We don't present ourselves before him on our own merits. He does that also, doesn't he? And that's why he deserves our worship, because every aspect of our salvation from its inception, its pre-eternal inception in the mind and will of God, when he decreed men and women and children to be saved for all eternity, all the way to our ultimate glorification when we're presented before his throne, blameless and with great joy, all of that is a work of God for his people. And he alone deserves worship because of it. That's our second reason for worshiping God is not only that He keeps us now, but He presents us before Himself blameless. We're preserved and we're presented. Obviously, this is closely tied to our first reason for worship, but it's worth pausing and reflecting, uh, especially for just a moment. If you've been to a Christian funeral, a Reformed funeral, you'll probably have heard Questions 37 and 38 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, you may not know them by heart. That's okay. I came prepared for that eventuality. These are two of the most comforting questions in the Catechism. For those of you who know them, I'm sure you'll agree. Question 37, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? What happens when you die in Christ? The souls of believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. What's the first benefit you receive at death by being in Christ? Being immediately made perfect in holiness and passing directly into glory. Immediately into glory, having been made perfect in death. Question 38, what benefits do believers then receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God, to all eternity. Think about that for just a second with me. God's promise to you, Christian, is that when you die, you will be presented before the presence of His glory, stand before the throne of Jesus Christ, having been made perfect in holiness. I can't even imagine what that's like, can you? Having been made perfect in holiness, to one day be reunited with your glorified body, and here in, in my estimation is the best part, and you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. Now, if you, like me, know how little you deserve to be openly acknowledged as a child of God, and even more how less you deserve to be acquitted for all your sins, these promises are overwhelming. 
if this does not give you great joy, that God's promise to you is to stand you before his throne and before all the powers, all the rulers, all the men, all the women, everyone who has ever lived from beginning to end of time, every angel, every demon, Satan himself, the Son of God seated on the right hand of the Father, and to declare openly acknowledging that you are his child and you are wiped clean from all of your guilt before him. I can't imagine what might grant you that joy. What great news. This is why we worship God, because He's promised not only to keep us in this life from falling away from faith, but He's promised to bring us all the way in front of His throne, stand us right before Himself, and declare before all creation, this one's mine. Blameless, acquitted of all his sin. It's no wonder that Jude says it this way. That would be enough to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. How? With great joy. Great joy. This is the biblical equivalent of being told that all of your debts have been paid, all of your wrongs have been righted, and all of your sorrows will be turned into dancing. It's the promise that God has really and truly adopted you through His Son, Jesus Christ, and has reserved a place for you at His table in heaven forever. There is a little placard sitting in front of a chair waiting for you with your name written on it, and nothing in all of the created realm can ever remove that card from the table. He promises to present us before the throne of glory with great joy. Now, I love this little tidbit. Do you know where the phrase, this idea of great joy, is found elsewhere in Scripture? It's found in Luke 1.44. If you remember Luke 1, we know that the young Mary who is pregnant goes to see her cousin Elizabeth who is farther along in her pregnancy... And in Elizabeth's womb is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And it tells us that as Mary drew near, that unborn baby leapt for joy at the presence of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. The same joy that John the Baptist experienced in utero will be the joy that you and I have every moment of every day for all of eternity. Great joy. Some of us haven't leapt in a long time. Neil this morning was talking about hiking down Grandfather Mountain with sore hips and just talking about hiking Grandfather Mountain. I was out of breath over there. You should see me. I was sweating. My back started hurting. Some of us haven't leapt for a long time. You're going to. Great joy. The sort of joy that an unborn, spirit-filled John the baptizer experienced at the presence of his Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we have to look forward to. Not fear and trembling. Great joy. Joy. When we're presented before his throne, it will be inexpressible. Words right now fail us. It will be overwhelming, overcoming joy. Joy that will be known in full from the moment we see him and it will last forever. 
as the catechism says, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. So how do you practice for that now? As a Christian, promise this joy. Does your worship here reflect what it will look like there? In other words, ask yourself this question. Am I a joyful worshiper? Am I a joyful worshiper? I think it's one of the saddest indictments often leveled at Reformed Christians that our worship is often joyless and listless. How can that be? As those who hold with great affection to the doctrines of grace, the perseverance of the saints, that God will keep us and present us before Him, that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that on account of Christ's righteousness, received by faith alone and imputed to us, that we'll be able to stand before Him forever. Shouldn't our worship be the most joyful? How do you worship then, Christian? Is your worship full of joy? Do you know these promises as your own? And do they inform your heart's posture when you walk into this room Lord's Day after Lord's Day? I hope they do. I know that life is difficult. I know that trials come. I know that there are reasons to not be happy from moment to moment. And there are legitimate reasons to grieve and be full of sadness in this season or that. But underneath those emotional experiences we have in this life, there is an, there is an undercurrent of joyful expectation that all of God's promises are true for you now and forever. And that's what Jude wants us to remember. He will keep us preserved. He will present us blameless and with great joy. And the third reason that we worship God is because He is preeminent. He alone is God. Look at what it says in verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, Jude says. This ought to uh, uh, remind us of that great creed from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a statement of His exclusive divinity. He alone is God. He alone created all things. He alone does all things perfectly. He alone rules over all things as King of kings and Lord of lords, and therefore He deserves our worship. This reminds us as well that He alone is able to save because it's with Him that we have to do business in eternity, isn't it? If He alone is God and He made us, He sets the standard, and when we violate it, He then becomes the only one that can reconcile us to Himself. These are statements about God's exclusive divinity and the exclusivity of the gospel. He alone is God. We don't believe in a pantheon of gods, blindly hoping that one of them might be kind enough to save or powerful enough to save. We don't believe in a single God who might save us if we achieve the right balance of good works over and against our sins. Rather, rather, we worship our only God, the only God, our Savior, who gave His only Son that we might be forgiven by His sovereign grace. Now, I'm confident that almost everyone here believes this. 
I imagine, I haven't looked all of you in the eye yet this evening, at some point we'll rub shoulders or interact or we'll sit together in the fellowship hall in a time of fellowship and and remembrance. But if I were to look each one of you in the eye, I doubt there'd be a person here that I would go, I'm not sure that person believes that God alone is God, that he alone is preeminent, that he alone saves. I'm sure you're thinking about yourself right now and thinking, yes, I do believe those things. I know those things are true. My question for us is this, if this is so, why do we find ourselves worshiping so many other things then? Why do we spend so much of our time focusing our attention, our best energy, our greatest emotions, our most efforts on everything but God, on status, money? The happiness of our children, perhaps, comfort. We idolize sports figures, celebrities, all things that will let us down. None of these things, none of our bank accounts, none of our happiness, none of our careers, none of our acclaim or our legacy, no matter what you do in this life, none of those things present you before God blameless, do they? None of those things bring you into the presence of God with great joy. None of those things keep you preserved in this life and into the next. It's only God. God alone is our Savior. God alone deserves our worship. And yet we look to almost anything and everything but Him for satisfaction and comfort in this life. And the question that Jude begs here in this chapter or in these verses is if all this other stuff is going to fail you, if all these other things are vanity, if all these other things are fleeting, then why are you worshiping them? To the only God, our Savior, belong majesty and dominion and power and authority because He alone is God. We worship God because He alone is God. He is alone our Savior, and He alone deserves our praise Well, He preserves us, and He presents us, and He's preeminent. And the fourth reason we worship God is because He has provided for us His only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We just said that God alone saves, and we know then how He does this, don't we? God saved us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and so forth. This is a statement about the cross. In other words, Jude wants us to think about worship as a response to the gospel. Worship is a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about the atoning work of Jesus through which we have salvation, by which we're kept, and according to which we're presented before Him blameless. Don't miss this. At some level, all of our worship is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not in fellowship with God apart from from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not brought into His presence. We're certainly not accounted as blameless. And we have no real joy apart from the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. We are not called or loved or kept apart from Christ. We don't receive mercy or grace or peace with God or the love of the Father apart from Jesus Christ. We don't have the forgiveness of sins and the washing away of trespasses apart from Jesus Christ. We don't have eternal life apart from knowing God, the one true God, and Him who He sent, Jesus Christ. Christ. And frankly, we can't worship apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question that this asks us is, are you trusting in Jesus Christ and looking to Him as the source of your worship? Do you worship in spirit and truth as He instructed us to? Do you root your identity before God and man in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you trusting in vain things? Your ability to memorize Scripture and recite it on command. Your read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year checklist. Or, if you're really pious, your read-through-Calvin-in-a-year checklist. Don't laugh, I have one of those. It's available on PDF for anyone who's interested. Perhaps you root your worship in your feelings. From time to time, I feel really excited about coming to church. Perhaps you read the order of worship as it's posted on our website on Friday afternoon, and you think, oh, I like that song. I'm excited to worship with that song. And then, okay, we're doing, oh, well, I mean, it's in the hymnal. At least that one's a psalm. And so, is that what informs your worship? Or is your worship rooted solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ that brings you into the presence of God the Father, blameless and with great joy? Brothers and sisters, I hope that your worship, that our worship is and always remains a gospel activity. That we're reminded that it's not because of what we've done or even what we've believed or because of our repentance or our law-keeping, our covenant-keeping, but only because of what Christ has done for us, the active obedience of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone that we're even able to worship and because of which we ought to worship. What a God! What a God to come down into this filthy world, to be born as a baby, as one song, one Christmas song says, that he slept beneath the stars that he had made. There's a great Christmas song called, How Should a King Come? And in that song, the the singer uh, uh, articulates what what the birth of a king should look like. He's born in the the castle on the highest hill, and he's brought out to be uh, uh, exalted in front of all the people in a chariot that's drawn by white horses, and all the people's trumpets are blowing, and songs are singing, and that's how a king should come. What a God that he came to earth And was born in a nowhere town, in a no-place country, in a stinking cave around animals to a young virgin girl and a carpenter man. And was raised in a backwater town, laboring with his hands 
until the time was appointed for him to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then he died on a cross? What sort of king does that? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ for you and for me. That's why we worship him, because of what he's done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. It's nothing we've done. It's all him. Well, lastly, finally, the reason we worship God is because of his absolute praiseworthiness. Look at verse 25 with me. To him... The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Psalm 29 verses 1 through 2 tell us to ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I often worry that this is the one aspect of worship that we miss. We agree with the tenets of the gospel. We know that Jesus alone saves us and keeps us. We believe that God alone is God. But do these truths stand in isolation in the compartments of your mind? Or do they lead you to meditate upon his absolute praiseworthiness? Do they all come together at a point drawing your attention upward to God for who He is and what He's done. Don't miss this. Uh, God does not need you or me or all the people in the world to prove that He's glorious or to tell Him that He's majestic or to grant Him dominion and authority. We worship God because of who He already is and the fact that He already has all these things. We're just agreeing with Him in worship. God is the most glorious, most majestic, most sovereign king over all, with total authority, and his glory is eternal before all time and now and forever, Jude says. When we worship God, we're worshiping him for what he already has. He already has all the glory. He already has all the majesty. He already has all the authority and dominion and power and praise. And so in worship, we're simply responding to who He really is, this praiseworthy God, the one who deserves the glory the psalmist tells us in Psalm 29. But in order to worship Him correctly, we have to know Him correctly, don't we? We have to understand who He is in light of these descriptions. So the question that we might ask ourselves in light of this list here is, do I understand the glory of God? Do I take time to meditate on what that means? Try as hard as I can and with the Spirit's help to wrap my tiny brain around His glory. What about His majesty? Do I understand what what it means that He's majestic? We use words like majestic to describe a wild horse running in a field. The Bible uses the word like majestic to describe God. I think we're overusing the term majestic when we drive by fields of wild horses. Or as one person said, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Do we understand that God has dominion and authority? And do we spend time meditating on, contemplating His authority? 
in order to praise Him for these things, to rightly acknowledge Him in the truth of these descriptions Jude gives us here, we must believe in them and know who God is. It's very important now, as we draw this to a close, that we don't allow these familiar words to become thoughtless or even worse, hypocritical statements that simply flow across our lips in an hour of worship each Lord's Day. Many of you have heard me say this before. When we confess our faith, when we sing hymns, and when we sing psalms, we're declaring something that everybody else in this room justly expects us to mean. When was the last time you sat down and just spent a quiet moment thinking about the glory of God, about the majesty of Jesus Christ, about the authority and dominion of the one true God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. The reason 90 minutes of worship on Sunday morning and 60 minutes in the evening shouldn't even feel like enough to us is because these realities transcend all other realities. The things that Jude has said to us in these two little verses are higher and loftier than any two sentences you could read in all the printed material and all the languages in all time in all the world. And we often gloss over them in our reading plan in a matter of seconds. This God... He's yours, and you're His. Do you know that? This God who keeps you and presents you and grants you great joy and alone is God who sent His Son to die the death you deserve, that God, He's yours, and you're His. Isn't that amazing? Why do we worship? What else could we do? What else could we do? We need the comfort they bring because life in this world is often uncomfortable, but He will preserve us. We need the grace they remind us of because we know our sinfulness, but He will present us blameless. We need the focus they offer because the world is full of idols, but He alone is God. We need the gospel they preach because legalism hides in each of our hearts, yet salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. And we need the majesty of which they speak because our hearts are often cold and our vision of God is often far too small. But like Jude tells us, he is the God of glory and of majesty and of dominion and of authority before all time and now and forever. Let's pray. Holy God, you alone are worthy of all glory and majesty. You have provided for us the most vile and contemptible of sinners, your only Son, through whom we have forgiveness and reconciliation, mercy, and peace with you. We ask you now to mortify our sin illuminate our minds to your truth that we might bow 
in humble adoration and worship, submitting ourselves to your word, submitting ourselves to your authority and dominion, that the fruit of our lives would be like a sweet aroma before you. We ask that all of our lives would be worship, not just on the Lord's day when we come here, not just when we sing, but especially when we gather together, that your praises would be sung from true hearts overflowing with joy at the experience of your loving embrace. We pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our only Savior, both now and forevermore. Amen.